All right, hello. Can you hear me all right? Let's see. All right. I've got to set this up so that your audio is coming through my headphones. I'm going to keep the music playing for a second while I figure that out on the Skype side. Welcome to the live stream. Welcome, Chris. How you doing? Good. How's it going? Fantastic. I can actually hear you in my headphones now, which is great because you were coming out of this audio device behind me. That wouldn't have worked. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And it's also nice that I don't hear myself on your audio. I was watching you in that uh, launch stream for Sublation magazine the other day. Oh, that was terrible. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> it was awful. I can't believe... Yeah, I hope that I don't have any audio problems with you now, but I shouldn't. No, no, it's great. Whatever you did to change it is working fantastic, I think. And uh, let me just peek in on the chat really quick, make sure that it's there, make sure it, make sure that it's working before mm -hmm. we start. Sometimes, sometimes we get talking and then it's not actually live. Um, yeah, looks like we're good. Everyone, is the audio okay? All right, well, I'll just, I'll say a couple things as an introduction. Um, so, my real name's Dave, uh, but I go by Plebe or Theory Plebe on this YouTube channel. Um, I expect a lot of people are coming just to hear you talk, and so that's why I felt the need to actually introduce myself. But for the handful of people who are just in my audience who don't know about you, who didn't see the stuff that I've sent out about this in advance, um, welcome everybody. So this is Chris Catrone. Chris Catrone, I mean, if, if, if you need to be introduced to Chris Catrone, admit it, you're basically a baby leftist. He's been, <laughs> he's been around for a while, and so um, this is kind of a really big moment for me. Uh, it's pretty awesome to have you on the channel. It's an honor. And... Uh, I'm just recovering from a sort of virus or something, and so um, I feel physically humbled, but I'm about to become probably intellectually and historically humbled, I'm sure. Um, so, I just I guess the only thing I'll say as introduction is that you're the founder of the Platypus Affiliated Society, that it's been around since 2006, that you have book groups happening all over the world. Um, where people are reading these these amazing and in-depth uh, syllabuses. Uh, I don't know if it, who puts these things together, but I've looked at a few of the years. That would be me. You put these together, yeah. Yeah, you want to say a thing about about what kind of what kind of activities platypus is, it does, and what kinds of stuff is on that syllabus? Okay, so our reading group syllabus is on the history of Marxism. And it covers basically uh, history of Marxism from Marx through Lenin up to Adorno. So it, it sort of takes up um, kind of classical historical Marxism and then Trotsky and the Frankfurt School. Um, and it, it, that's just one element of Platypus's activities. 
Um, our more kind of public aspect is our panel discussions, our public fora that we hold on various topics in various locations around the world. And during the, the COVID lockdown era, we did a lot of them over Zoom. And so we've amassed some on our YouTube channel that can be watched. We just recently put on a bunch of uh, panels on the war in Ukraine mm. that might be of interest to people. Um, so, but we cover a variety of topics, both like current events, like political issues and historical issues of Marxism. And you just had a convention. How did that go? Oh, the convention went very well. So it was our first uh, in-person convention in three years since 2019. Um, and uh, no, it was good. And we, we discussed things like Marxism and liberalism, um, COVID and the left, um, you know, what's the role of leadership on the left? Uh, what's the purpose of Marxism? That's the panel that I spoke on. Um, so we covered a variety of topics and it was it was very successful. We had members come from around the world. We had speakers come internationally and from around the U.S. Um, and so it was very well attended and it was a, a nice event with good discussions. I hope to make it to your next one. So cool. so the reason that I wanted to bring you on today uh, is because you've had this back and forth with Benedict Cryptofash over the last few months here. And... Uh, for anybody who didn't get my very long, but also short for its uh, for what it was covering, uh, Substack post about that or the the YouTube video version of that that went up on this channel. Mm -hmm. Basically, um, CryptoFash has. I I was under the impression that he was a post leftist until I saw that he was critiquing the post left, and so I don't really know. But then I saw that he's an anti left Marxist. Anti left, right? Mm -hmm. Anti left Marxist. And so it seems like there's probably some agreement between you two. I was hoping to get you two on so we could kind of nail down what the real substance of your disagreement actually is. Because the we hadn't really talked about this yet, but the motto of Platypus Affiliated Society is that the left is dead. Long live mm -hmm. the left. And so um, before before we really get uh, into that, I do want to you know give you a little bit of time to kind of unpack what you mean by that. Um, I'll just say that his that that the the only real reason that I had checked out anything having to do with the post left on that hell site Twitter I don't go there usually, but <laughs> but the only reason I had looked into it was because someone had lumped me it lumped me in with the post left and I I felt mm -hmm. I felt on the one hand excited that I might have found my people and on the other hand insulted that someone without really knowing my position would be able to lump me up with whoever these people were. And so I went looking into it and I, I couldn't really figure out if they believed anything. Um, except that, you know, obviously Democrats suck and the most of w the people who lead um, the protest movements or recoup the energy through the protest movements in this country saying that they're not left, that they're radical or whatever, are ultimately... Yeah, shock troops for the Democratic Party is a way that it gets talked uh -huh. about, right? I, 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 have you actually used that that uh, terminology before, shock troops? For the Democrats, sure. Yeah, you have. Um, you know, meaning they're the expendables. Um, you know, they're the people on the street agitating, uh, essentially for the Democrats. I mean, so the left is dead. Long live the left. Okay, so yeah, by that, platypus means Marxism. And Marxism has been dead as a political force for a very long time. 
Um, so it lives on. It has a kind of haunting spectral quality. There's the memory of Marxism, but Marxism as a as a living political phenomenon is really over, and it's been so for quite some time, uh, for many generations. Um, but long live the left, meaning something at least like the historical Marxist left is probably still necessary to overcome capitalism. And people still do remember Marxism, still reach back for that history. And so um, that history deserves um, a, you know, straightforward reckoning and, and uh, you know, study, contemplation. Um, and so Platypus tries to provide some of that. Now, I think that, you know, with Benedict Cryptofash, I think that one of his main disputes with me would be um, that for him, the left is alive, right? So the left is alive because it's the left wing of capitalism, it's progressive capitalism. And so, you know, that is like the enemy. I mean, there's a there's a history for this um, position that he and his, his comrades on Twitter, at least, um, have so there's there's a long history of kind of beyond left and right you know you can s find that on the anarchist um, side of things uh, there's been like varieties of like post-marxism that also are kind of beyond left and right I mean my own estimation of this phenomenon that recurs throughout history of a kind of beyond left and right um, tendency is that actually it turns out to be right-wing. Um, so usually the argument for beyond left and right becomes conservative, um, becomes affirmative in some way. And I have some warrant for that going back to Marx, because Marx and Engels and original Marxism actually regarded anarchism as reactionary, hmm. uh, meaning kind of conservative and right-wing. Um, in its own way. I think that generally, especially since the Russian Revolution, anarchism is seen as rather to the left of Marxism, like more liberatory, more emancipatory. Um, and Marxism has become saddled with being conservative or statist, especially. Um, and, you know, in that way, the use of this language of left and right um, has changed over the course of history. Right. Um, and I think that the phenomenon now that Benedict Cryptofash is expressing is really about mainstream capitalist politics. Meaning, I don't think that this would have emerged in the same way 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, you know, maybe back in the 90s, like 30 years ago, there was a kind of beyond left and right or a kind of post-left anarchism like kind of tendency um i think now it's really about the death of the millennial left and the disappointment with um that wave of history and with things like the bernie sanders campaign so it's really a disenchantment with the democrats it's really about that right. and it's about sort of following the logic of that all the way through to say the democrats and anyone and anything that is oriented around the democrats is the problem Right. And so it, 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 it does mean a kind of rediscovery of some older language from the history of Marxism and from the socialist movement and communist movement more generally. 
um, in which there has been a critique. There's been a critique of Marxism also as being um, like the left wing of capitalism as giving rise to like a new form of like state capitalism. Right. Um, you know, that is like the anarchist critique of the Bolsheviks in the Russian Revolution. It's the left communist or council communist, more accurately council communist critique of, of Marxism. Um, like my boy, so, like my boy, Paul Matic. Yeah, I like Paul him. Matic, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yep, exactly. So there's a long history of this, and especially it tends to be like materialist as opposed to calling the left idealist and metaphysical and uh, and that the left is a kind of an abstraction, whereas the point is like the concrete struggle of the working class. So there's a lot that's being reiterated here um, from that earlier history by Benedict Cryptofash. Um, but again, I, I don't think it's really a product of that old history. I think it's a product of the current moment. And Cryptofash and his cohort even the, the name cryptofash, I think, there is actually an affinity with the with the actual right. Right? Um, so... Well, he's definitely... And the, I, I take this to be the reason he got the name. I have... We, we can speculate about his identity. I mean, the bio, I, I think, on his substack is a mysterious imposter. So, right. I mean, you know, it leaves room for a lot of speculation. I, I you know, I, I wondered if it might be you, in fact, because we... I, let's be honest. Nobody's ever seen you and Cryptofash in the same room. So, <laughs> so, so, right. That would but, be that would be me in a schizophrenic state or something, uh, uh, or maybe as a way of like arguing against myself in order to prop myself up, prop yeah. up my own position. You know. I mean, to uh, be fair, to be fair, it could be me. It could be anybody. That's the problem with anonymity, yeah. you know. But right. So, but you know, you talk about him and his cohort. I don't really know enough about any of them, really. I just, I can, I know, I know Amy Therese. If you look on Twitter, yeah. Right. So, if you look on Twitter, what you'll find is um, that there's a lot of like avatars, icons. Um, that is like, I don't know, Middle Ages, Renaissance type stuff. Like, I feel like there's a kind of like, maybe a kind of Machiavellian vibe. You know, there's there's something, right? It's almost, uh, I don't know if it's like the Freemasons, you know, it's got this kind of vibe to it mm. um, that reminds me of the intellectual right, the right wing, right? And the intellectual culture of the right wing has some of this going on. Um, you know, they like to be the, the new Machiavellians, right? Um, and so, you know, it has, it has that vibe, you know, I'm not sure, you know, exactly because I don't follow the other people, you know, From, on his Twitter. The only thing that I do know is that like, he mainly comes from Amy Teresa's or Teresa's, I don't know how to say her name even, but she has a podcast mm. called what's left. She's an Australian, mm -hmm. Australian blogger and podcaster. And she used to be some kind of a radlib lefty, and eventually um, she burnt out. I think she burnt out on round one of Bernie, but then she kept quiet for a while, and then she started popping off and mainly calling people names on Twitter, kind of, kind of a sort of Trumpist attitude, you know, um, yep. on Twitter. But the what I found of value as far as uh, what that podcast did was it brought some people who don't really have a platform anywhere into dialogue with other people who also don't really have a platform anywhere. 
and they're all talking. And right now, uh, I think the main thing that most people are going to say is that it's an anti-political project. Um, and I think that that's a, a worthy critique. And I think she's even said that herself, that it's true. But, you know, I, I also think to that describe there's... Describe it as anti-political or anti-politics. Right. And therefore, you know, okay. see, see, and therefore seeds ground to the right or whatever is usually what people will say, which is why, you know, to take on the moniker like CryptoFash or whatever is just to kind of get out ahead of it. But they do end up hanging out with these pe these Renaissance people. They, you know, so let's think, for instance, uh, Joel, is his name Kotkin or something like that? He wrote that book, Neo-Feudalism, and uh, Patrick, J, mm. Patrick J. Deneen, and uh, the guy who wrote The Unbroken Thread, I forget his name, but he's, that, right. I, I think he's an Iranian guy who came here, and now he's, like, writing in defense of, of uh, tradition, basically. But he's also, uh, one of the things that, I would say is a unifying factor between those people is like they they are at least apparently anti-racist and also if not anti-capitalist in some cases i think they are anti-capitalist um critical of capitalism or interested in working with people who who are i mean i would say you know right so there's a kind of new right um and they are anti-neoliberal, right? So their disenchantment with capitalism is specifically with neoliberal capitalism, hmm. neoliberalism. And we are living through a crisis of neoliberalism now. Um, and the crisis of neoliberalism has shifted. So it started out, I would say, on the Republican side of things. And that's what Trump represented, a break with neoliberalism in the Republican Party. But now with Biden in office, the crisis of neoliberalism shifts to the Democratic Party and to the left. Mm. Um, the left as it's existed in the last 50 years is a kind of neoliberal left. Um, and in some ways, of course, that I guess I guess I hate to do this, but yeah, could you just really yeah. quick say what you are meaning by that term? I mean, I take it you, you mean that they mean what you mean when you use the term neoliberal. So what is neoliberal for you then? So neoliberalism would be a kind of um, conservative, like feeding into uh, capitalism of the new social movements of the 60s. So the movements of race, gender, uh, sexuality, um, you know, that uh, kind of new Democratic Party coalition, electoral yeah. coalition. Um, that uh, really comes out of the new left social movements um, and is now fully institutionalized in the Democratic Party. I'm glad um, I asked so, then because that's... Yeah. I, I'm glad I asked then because usually what people say is it's like, well, it's Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and Bill Clinton and it's austerity. And that's pretty much what they use to encapsulate that's it. That's an element of it. That's definitely an element of it. So it, the way that I put it is the combination of um, economic conservatism and social liberalism. Okay. And, you know, what's interesting, though, about, like, the Reagan revolution, if you will, um, less the case, I guess you could make a similar case about Margaret Thatcher's election, but let's keep it on Reagan. So Reagan's election was based on the winning over of the so-called Reagan Democrats, Right. Um, and so neoconservatism, neoliberalism, and even the evangelical Christian right 
Um, I mean, or evangelical Christians. Let's just leave it at that and not talk about the evangelical Christian right, because not all evangelical Christians are right wing. All three of those come out of the Democratic Party's New Deal coalition. So evangelical Christians were voters for the New Deal Democratic Party um, up through the 60s. And then, uh, of course, neoconservatism, there's like William F. Buckley neoconservatism, but then there's the more like Cold War, like neoconservatives, like the Cold War hawk neoconservatives, and they come out of the Democratic Party and join the Reagan administration in that capacity um, because they see like Carter especially as being too soft. So they want to be very hawkish in the Cold War. There's, the, there's that kind of neoconservatism, a kind of militant like war for democracy and even like liberal human rights interventionism. Now, and neoliberalism, neoliberalism like Milton Friedman also comes out of the Democratic Party Right. And back in the day, like neoliberalism really referred to like the Democrats, uh, the Democratic Leadership Council. So Bill Clinton and Al Gore. Right. The new Democrats. Right. Right. The new Democrats were the neoliberals. Which and yeah. For Thomas Frank in the book, Listen Liberal, he talks about how the you know, he uses a bunch of Bill Clinton quotes you know, from these defining speeches to, 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 to highlight how any talk of poverty became talk of, well, the solution to that is just to make sure they have access to education, which obviously right. the subtext to that is some people just deserve to be poor because they didn't take advantage of that education that was offered right. to them. Right. Right. And so that's yeah, a kind of dark moment. And that, that he talks about this as the, the shift from at, at least appealing to working class voters to taking them for granted and then just focusing on trying to cultivate uh, some uh, really, you know, some buy-in from the professional classes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I think that that's really what it boils down to is the working class. Okay. In other words, what we're really dealing with is a kind of um, exaggerated expression on the left and even on the post-left left. Right, because like the point is, there's no point in being an anti-leftist Marxist. If you're a Marxist, you're on the left. That's it, um, in one way or another. So what we're talking about is the shifting electorate in terms of the working class. So it is about like the Reagan Democrats, who then supported Bill Clinton, who then supported George W. Bush, and who then supported Obama, and who finally supported Trump, and maybe shifted back to Biden to at least some degree. But there is this question of like the working class. And so I think the anti-leftist Marxism of a Benedict Cryptofash is really a phenomenon of that, right? The, the apparent loss of the working class vote to Trump and the Republicans, um, which again happens periodically in the last you know 50 years. It, it happened most significantly, well, of course, in, to some major degree with Nixon, but surely with Reagan. So that's the source of anxiety about like, okay, the left and the working class. And so if Marxism is about the working class, being an anti-leftist Marxist seems to be about choosing the workers over the left. 
And why would we be confronted with that issue today, like now, like in the last year or two? Because of the Trump phenomenon. Right. And because, you know, again, the Democrats, as usual, kind of take the working class vote for granted, bleed working class votes. Biden, I feel like the Biden election, because this, you know, ripples through the culture of and, and our consciousness. They made a deliberate effort to try to win the white suburban vote against Trump, right? In other words, they were trying to win back a certain constituency for Trump, the Democrats under Biden, but they didn't aim for the blue collar working class. They voted, they aimed for the middle class suburbanites and the white, white female suburban voters who were turned off by Trump's style. Like it was, it, they said this over and over again, right? And so the fact that the Democrats essentially cast off any any attempt to appeal to the working class, and they had already said, you know, Hillary had already said that they were a basket of deplorables and irredeemables, right? Like, where does that leave Marxism? In other words, if Marxism is oriented towards the working class, what happens when mainstream capitalist politics seems to be characterized by a, a, a fight and a crisis of who's appealing to the working class and who's not. And, you know, the, the idea that the Republicans should be the workers' party, right, which, you know, whatever that might mean. Um, but I think that that's what we're really talking about. I, I don't think that we're really talking about the struggle for communism. I don't, I, I mean, I would like to be talking about that. I would love to be talking about, okay, how are we going to get the dictatorship of the proletariat in the United States? I don't think that's where Benedict Crypto Fash is coming from. I really don't. And it's going to be a problem for me is because I don't either, but I'm still going to play devil's advocate. And so yep. I'm, you know, I, so for instance, a way, a way of doing that would be to say it's not implausible that Bernie could have done a lot more if not symbolically um than perhaps realistically by running as a republican against donald trump in 2020 because in all of my experiences in red states and blue states and battleground states that kind of go either way knocking on doors making phone calls i got a lot of sympathy from people who are right-wingers or kind of normie conservative types and I got a lot of condescension and bullshit from people who call themselves left, whether they're calling themselves progressives or they might be actual Marxists or people who call themselves Marxists who think obviously, well, Bernie doesn't go far enough. They want a dictatorship of the proletariat. He's not doing that. My position was I love Marx, but you have to foster the conditions for even having that conversation. The conditions were there for him. They're not for us. And so you know, this was an important step in that direction because most people hadn't even heard of the working class at this point. Right? Huh. So, right? Uh -huh. So it's like he's, he's bringing the word back. And so I just saw that as inherently important. Also, I would like health insurance. I've never really had it. So that'd be cool. And I still don't have it. But the, the, the fact that they were... Uh, and, and if you ever watch those, those Fox Town Halls, did you ever watch those? Sure. You, right? Sure. He got a huge positive reception. And then, you know, the, and I think a big part of it is, is that he has a left, um, 
uh, populist rhetoric. And I think rhetoric's mm-hmm. rhetoric, people kind of eye roll and dismiss rhetoric, but uh, I think it means a lot. To Rhetoric's pe- important in politics. Right, right. And so the, you know, because Trump does this, what we could call pseudo right populist, you know, rhetoric, um, and obviously has inspired a lot of other, you know, uh, media figureheads to, to do this. Obviously the most popular today being Tucker Carlson, um, Mm. is it's like, they get it. They know how to talk to the, the American who feels disenfranchised by the system. Uh, But instead of, well, the American unclear, whether that, that means the working class, whether the American working, are we talking about what, you know, like, Tucker, you know, is good at, like, making an appeal to Americans. That's not the same thing as making an appeal to the working class. As in, you think that a person who's talking to Americans should be trying to talk in a way that would appeal to the workers of the world? No, it's not so much that, right? I think that, you know, um, like, the kind of, you know, conservative right-wing nationalism, you know, it doesn't have to be, like, white nationalism, which is what, you know, the Democrats call Tucker Carlson, you know, you can have people of color who are American patriots and who are basically conservative on that basis. Totally. Um, you know, I mean, look, obviously what we're dealing with is, you know, cause Tucker will talk about like the crushing of the American working class, but he'll say it's the middle class, right? The destruction of the American middle class. Right. And that's some funny language, you know, with a venerable history Meaning everyone who's not rich and not abjectly poor is middle class. Right. You know, and so, like, it's kind of like the workers who think of themselves as middle class. Okay. But is that the working class that Marxists and socialists are talking about? And not, not in terms of the group of people, but in terms of the consciousness. It, it reasserts this idea of meritocracy in the American dream where it's like, if you're not in the middle class or working your way into the middle class, there's a problem with you. Oh, wait a minute. No, there's a problem with... The Democrats are making it so you can't get in there. Um, or the deserving poor versus the undeserving poor. The deserving poor are the people who show the work ethic. Right. And the undeserving poor are those who don't. Right, right, right. Right. And so it's, you know, it's all very tricky. But I think that, you know, to get back to your point about, like, canvassing for Bernie. Obviously, the Bernie campaign was a huge turning point for a generation. Um, I would say for the millennial left. Um, also a phenomenon of like the working class, I think, because, you know, what I'd say about Bernie is that he first started out making an appeal to a working class constituency, a more working class constituency than usual in elections. Right. But then he shifted towards competing with Hillary over the standard Democrat voter. He did. And, you know, and, and then he had to say, well, Trump is the most racist, sexist and homophobic president ever, right. which is ludicrous. Absolutely. Right. We've had like actual bona fide racist presidents and, of course, bona fide sexist presidents. Um, well, and most and of the time he's just <laughs> most of the time he's just kind of sarcastically in a trolling way saying exactly what Bill Clinton was already saying behind cl- closed doors anyway. Oh, Trump, maybe. I mean, you know, but rather than getting into that in terms of the person, it's also the appeal, right? Was Trump's appeal especially racist, sexist, and homophobic? Are we dealing with the racism, sexism, and homophobia of the working class? Is that what we're dealing with when looking at Trump's political success? 
No, I would say no. But Hillary put it that way. It's she did. Horribles, well, and I, I right? undoubtedly there's a handful of people who I see myself as a racist, and I'm going to vote for Trump because I see things this way. But you know, those people are obviously yeah, like handful. not very representative of anything, and obviously I'm never vote for any Republican. There's people who voted for Biden for the same reason, without a doubt. You know. For it, well, they certainly usually vote Republican since the Reagan era, and maybe since the Nixon era. I guess they sometimes vote for for Democrats as well. But again, like what we're talking about is basically a crisis of neoliberalism, a, a, a breaking of the ice, a thawing of the Washington consensus neoliberalism and the bipartisan consensus in in the United States between Democrats and Republicans. Um, that is expressed by both Bernie and Trump. And Bernie and Trump did well in the primaries in 2016 by appealing to independent voters. Right. Not registered Republicans or registered Democrats. And a lot of independent voters are working hard. Right. But a lot of them are just middle class. Mm -hmm. Right. They might be what Marxists would call petty bourgeois. Or they might be in the privileged layers of the working class or something. There's also a lot of generational anxiety. There's a lot of voters for Trump. I'm not sure so much for Bernie. Bernie might have had more of a millennial vote, but Trump certainly got the vote of middle-aged working class people who are concerned about the world that their children are going to grow up in. Um, or the world that their young, you know, that their like young adult children are entering in terms of the workforce and loss of opportunities. Right? So there's that, there's the kind of anxiety of downward mobility from the middle class. And that's, you know, like a theme of, of, I would say, the Democrats. And so when Tucker Carlson says the destruction of the American working class and the destruction of the American middle class, more specifically, mm-hmm. uh, that's something that the, that the Democrats could say, too. So, again, like Tucker has to be called like a far right wing person precisely because he's edging too much into the domain of the Democrats. The traditional domain of the Democrats. The, the traditional that, again, this domain. Is really, the background. But the traditional right. domain being a little, yeah, uh, many decades ago, right? Uh, somebody in the chat says a materialist analysis doesn't center rhetoric, though. And I want to tie that into the point I was going to get to with uh, the pseudo populist rhetoric. Um, I was going to say, right. I think the big thing about it is, first of all, people's psyches. And relation, you know, the neural pathways that are uh, triggered by uh, signifiers <laughs> mm-hmm. could be argued to be material in some, you know, in substantial way. Of course. Um, and that the, and obviously you're not going to find a Marxist who didn't practice rhetoric, um, at least not one who was uh, successful. And, uh, but the, the point I Lenin wanted to make. Might have been, Lenin might have been pretty unrhetorical. I mean, he had a fiery style, and I know a lot of people just love that style today. You know, I don't know if it was considered rhetoric at the time, but today I think it's it's very sexy. Less, less fiery than Marx, and less fiery than people like Rosa Luxemburg or Trotsky, right? And, uh, you know, it's just a funny, I just thought of that, you know, as you said that, I was like, oh, you know, actually, Lenin's pretty unrhetorical, <laughs> um, you know, pretty dry, um, and, you know, was massively successful but you know okay so let's let's deal with this question well let me i I have to i have to say the thing though so it's just that Mm -hmm. the the 
the solution to there being some popular uh, pseudo populist rhetoric and it, it seeming to work uh, for the disenchant yep. for the disenchanted or independent type people uh, is not anti-populism but that is what happened and so though we look at uh, you know a lot of this stuff coming out of what we currently see with the post left and the the anti-left and all these things as a response to Trump it's also a response to the fact that a lot of people seem to just double down on anti-populist talking points and rhetoric and mm. I think the the rhetoric around covid is a perfect example of it it's a it's it's a rhetoric of uh, trust authorities shut the fuck up get in line take your orders do as we say you're an idiot if you don't you're a murderer if you don't you don't deserve to live or at least to have a job if you don't this mm -hmm. is, and that you know I, I I know everybody in platypus has some critical thoughts about the PMC term today and you know perhaps rightfully so but I like how Catherine Lou says that the, the this rhetoric is meant to scapegoat and humiliate regular working people it is no it okay. certainly is um, I mean I guess Catherine Lou says you know people rejected Hillary because they saw her as the boss lady and no <laughs> doubt that's true right yeah um, in other words these are you know managerial scolds like the Democrats, for sure. Yeah. And um, and that turns off the working class. But, yeah, the real question is, does anyone care about the working class, really? Like, the Democrats and the Republicans? Not really. And again, no. that's where I feel like this kind of anti-leftist Marxism of, of Cryptofash comes in, where I feel like, you know, it's not as if capitalist politics has to a priori exclude the workers. It doesn't, right? That's a much more recent phenomenon. Right. That and and a very recent phenomenon. In other words, not just a phenomenon of neoliberalism, but a phenomenon of the last several elections. Meaning, I think starting in 2012, you know, there's a narrower electoral base. Um, I think that Obama did try to make some kind of appeal to the working class in 2008 around the financial crisis. Yeah, and yeah. promising things like. Employee Free Choice Act to make it easier to organize labor unions that was dropped, um, and so starting in 2012, there's there is more of a move away from any kind of real appeal to the working class as such. Instead, the workers are kind of taken for granted, and the union leadership, the AFL-CIO, you know, they routinely support the Democrats um, without having to get any concessions from the Democrats for their support. And Trump instead, you know, made this kind of appeal, you know, to bring back uh, what he called, you know, the right to life and the dignity of work, you know, which appeals. It's not just a matter of like uh, anti-abortionism. It's also, you know, do we value life or do we allow people to overdose on opioids? Right. right. And so that there's like a theme here and it does have a working class appeal. And there was crossover appeal. We should we should you know admit there's crossover appeal between Bernie and Trump, right? So people who voted in the primaries for Bernie did vote for Trump in the general election because right. Bernie wasn't the candidate. There were many people who were like, if it's not Bernie, then I'm voting for Trump. But I mean, the, but also more people switched. Over. How does this go? I think it was more people switched over from. Was it from Obama? 
was it from Hillary to I don't know the 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 previous one more people did this you know do you know what I'm trying to say I could I, I, I oh said, sure there was generally more of a shift from Obama to Trump there was more yes. of a shift from Obama to Trump okay yes between that, 2012 and 2016 yeah and there and there was a lot of people I think it was I think I think see this is why I'm like catching myself but I think it was also more people who voted for Hillary switched over to vote for Trump than Bernie people possibly right I don't know about that yeah I mean I but know. that's that's be we have this this uh, scapegoat figure in our heads right. of the the kind of people who show up at a Trump rally who are not indicative of the actual people who vote for Trump I mean you know obviously oh, they exist true too. Right. but we're talking about that's upper true. middle class Upper upper yeah. middle class and like you know rich ass business owners you know they don't show up to rallies they don't need to you know they're running businesses. Well, they might show up for a rally because they might pay the price of the ticket. You know, I mean, for me, you know, what's kind of interesting are the Latinos and the blacks who voted for Trump, and those would be not just Christian conservative middle class people, although there are certainly a lot of them. But I feel like there is such a thing as a silent majority, you know, to go back to the kind of Nixon phrase. And when we're talking about the silent majority, we're talking about the working class, right? In other right. words, people who you're not going to know voted for whoever they voted for, they're just going to vote. Right. You know, they're going to vote in precincts where they're much less likely to be polled by the media, you know, right. who to just vote for, right? Because the media polls at the middle class precincts, not at the working class precincts. So, you know, again, even the way this data is collected. So I think, you know, again, in the background, I feel like the crisis of neoliberalism, the anxiety about the shifting electorate for the Democrats and the Republicans, anxiety about like the working class. And I think it's kind of like, okay, you can either reject the working class because you can call them the basket of deplorables and irredeemables, or you can kind of say, no, we're going to be with the workers. And if the workers are against the left, then we're against the left. But it's a little bit of a virtual fantasy. In other words, I don't think it's really about the working class at all for Benedict Cryptofash. Like, right? Like, I think, you know, it's like anti-left Marxism. And Marxism is, of course, concerned with the working class. But that's not what Marxism means today, right? I feel like Marxism today, it, you know, like the Jacobin DSA left, I think Marxism is an explanation for their declining middle class, like fortunes. It's not really about the working class. And that's why they're, they agonize over whether the PMC is part of the working class or not. And are they PMC or not? And, you know, what does that mean? And, you know, who's a worker and who's not a worker? You know, they really agonize over that question. Right, because for um, them, this is a bunch, this is really just more identity politics. And, well, actually, it's funny because Graeber says that the most, like, characteristic mode for the PMC, he wrote a little piece on the PMC um, a few years back before he passed. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says the two characteristic uh, modes of the PMC are uh, a vulgar Foucauldianism and reflexivity which is you know reflexivity is obviously 
Well, as a Navel white... gazing Narcissism. As yeah. a, well, it's also the, you can't leave your identity out of anything, and insofar as you are to succeed and it's legitimate, you've got to constantly make appeals back to your identity or put your identity down. So that would be the right. reflexivity as opposed to the, the Foucauldianism is, it's really just like micro-interaction analysis, uh, microaggression yeah, stuff. Yeah, microaggression. Right. Yeah. Right. And so to, to, to get all worried, power. to get all worried about whether you're a PMC or whether you're a working class is sort of an extension of this. When obviously for Marx, the issue is never like right. it doesn't he, he wasn't like, well, you know, Engels is pretty good, except for the fact that his dad is rich, you know, it, you know, right. well, Engels has never had to work for Engels, never had to work a day in his life. Marx never said it, you know. Nope. So, again, it's kind of like. You know, I'm just trying to diagnose this ideological phenomenon of, like, anti-left Marxism and what it's really about. Um, I think that none of us, not the Twitterati, right, not, like, you know, the blogosphere or the vlog, you know, the YouTubers, I don't think that any of us right now are in the business of organizing the working class to take power. I think we are engaged in intellectual work, if you will, of some kind or another, even if in a very degraded form, in the form of tweets, or in the form of like Substack essays. Yeah. Um, you know, we're doing intellectual work. We are we are practicing rhetoric. We are right, and even if it's the rhetoric of material reality, that's that's rhetoric too. <laughs> um, well, there's real shit that needs to be figured out, right? And so, no doubt, but you know, who's actually doing that? I mean, in other words, I'm I'm honest enough to say, you know, my domain is intellectual, meaning I am I am thinking about ideas. I'm trying to recover Marxism as an idea. Uh, you know, without actually having access to its real object, namely a socialist workers' movement, right? Um, or communism is the real movement of history. Like, that's not what we're talking about in reality, because it doesn't exist. And so what are we talking about? We're talking about some ideas. And, you know, I guess there there is a difference between ideas and rhetoric, of course. And ideas have become debased into a kind of rhetoric, into a kind of in-speak, into a kind of language policing. Right. And so I just feel like, isn't that what Benedict Cryptofash is doing? Isn't he saying what matters is what we call ourselves? We shouldn't call ourselves the left. And it's like, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. Right. It matters what the substance of it is. And I don't think that any of us are dealing with the substance of the working class as a political force. Well, I, I, I. Yeah, so here's this one will be easy for me to play devil's advocate for because uh-huh. it's it's something I've just I've pondered about. But you know, so I've got a friend in the IMT uh, in Canada, mm-hmm. and you know, for anyone who doesn't know, it's uh, you know they're Trotskyists, the mm-hmm. um, international Marxist uh, what tendency tendency, yeah, and uh, there's a lot of them. They, you know, like when they have a convention, very strong group, They're very one big. Of the few groups that didn't fold into the DSA, and they constantly educate their people to not lead the workers, but to be a part of whatever the movements are at the moment, and to try to 
uplift but mainly educate and you know them to try to you know to try to get them to go in a more materialist direction that could eventually hopefully challenge capital uh, so i think it's admirable what's ultimately you know what they're trying to do but here's the thing uh, it, it seems like the overwhelming majority of them presuppose that any given movement that they need to be getting involved with is going to be one that's coming out of the progressive Yes. The so-called progressive wing of capitalism, meaning that when you have truckers who are like, you know what, I don't like this COVIDian bullshit, and so then they have their trucker protest, the IMT is not there giving them pamphlets that could possibly speak to them or make sense. Instead, they're just like, yeah, no. they're, they're a bunch of Nazis, and they just kind of like stereotype them all as that, and they don't try to educate them. That assumes that the left of today is really just a degraded left. It does. Well, I mean, right. So, like, the sectarian Marxist left organizations basically try to recruit students. And they recruit people who have youthful enthusiasm, have the time and energy, have the mental space and capacity to basically absorb Marxism at the level of ideas. And so one of the reasons why Platypus, by the way, does what we do is that we're honest with ourselves that we're not trying to organize the working class. We're more honest with the other sectarian Marxist left groups, which of course we are one in this sense, but we're more honest about the fact that, look, we're talking to students. And we're, right. we're talking to, to students who are Middle either rebelling against their conservative parents or who are yeah. coming from very liberal homes but want to out-progressive their parents. Yeah, exactly, that's right. And so, you know, I, I myself was a working class student at a small liberal arts college. I was very much sociologically out of place at Hampshire College. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to make any great <coughs> excuse me, claims for myself in terms of, like, class. But I am just going to say I didn't fit in well with the sectarian Marxist left, meaning because I didn't have resources, I actually was a bad recruit for them. You know, I couldn't travel, I couldn't take time off, I couldn't be at the next demonstration, I had to work, you know? And so I was just not a good candidate for being a cadre of one of these groups, because I wasn't middle class enough. So that's just a reality. And that would be true of the DSA, Jacobin, you know, that's true of anybody, that's true of the left. And it's again, also it's true like, well, of, it's also true of mothers. <laughs> Sure. I mean, it's true. the left is very people, bad right? at, you know, the, yeah. there's, there's not a lot of cadres of mothers, you know, so, but, you know, time and energy is a huge issue, but also like, there's no one who needs more social supports. And so, you know, like, mm -hmm. do they in general gravitate towards, you know, churches and, 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 and more liberal kinds of community uh, mm -hmm. groups? Yes, they do. But like the left does not see mothers as the revolutionary subject, even though it's a meme at this point that it's when moms can't get bread that revolutions happen, right? Well, when a certain kind of revolution happens, right? Okay. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, there might be a revolution in this country and it might be based on a bread riot and that doubt it's going to lead to socialism. Right. Yeah, well, and that's also the, that's also the issue with this idea that it's that social the prime conditions for socialism are when people are just really desperate, right? Which is uh Yeah, that's a total mistake. Right. right. So in other words, I think that well look, 
we don't have like a, a socialist movement, a proletarian socialist movement. Um, and what we have instead are ways of folding uh, a kind of anti-capitalist sentiment or a discontent with capitalism into progressive liberalism. And so, you know, look, I'm sympathetic to the Benedict Crypto-Fash criticism of the left, of course. Um, but again, I feel like that's not what I mean by the left. And that's in our exchange of articles, I tried to say, look, the way I'm using the term the left is very much about the left in Marxism. Like, in other words, not Marxism as part of the left, but rather, is there a left wing of Marxism? Right? And that's a very different proposition. Because to say, okay, well, the left is just the left wing of capitalism. You know, but we're not talking, I'm not talking about Democrats versus Republicans. That's not what I mean by the left. I don't mean the left is dead because the Democrats are ineffectual. Or the Democrats suck. I don't mean that at all. I mean, I'm a... a, a strict adherent to uh, Gore Vidal's formulation that in the United States there's one party, a property party, and it has two right wings, Democrat and Republican. Um, meaning I don't consider the Democrats to be the, to the left of the Republicans. I really don't. Um, I don't think progressive liberal capitalism is to the left of conservative liberal capitalism, which is what you have in the United States. I, I think that there's a fundamental issue there um, you know, who are the conservatives, who are the progressives? And, you know, I just will remind that Newt Gingrich said, we're the true revolutionaries, by which he meant we're the true progressives. And it's the Democrats who are conservative, who are holding on to the old way of doing things. And we Republicans are going to change things. We're the progressives. Right? We're the reformers. We're the ones who are going to make the necessary changes. And the Democrats, of course, deny that that could ever be true because they're the party of FDR and LBJ. So they claim a monopoly on progressivism. But we have to admit that the Republicans have challenged that claim. In other words, they've, they've stood as the party of change against a kind of ossified, sclerotic, obsolete way of doing things. And that's what we're dealing with now with the crisis of neoliberalism. We're dealing with the inability of an old way of doing things from working. And that's at the level of policy and it's at the level of electoral majorities, right? So the old way of crafting electoral majorities is not working for either the Democrats or the Republicans. And the old policies are not working for either the Democrats or the Republicans. That's been true since the Great Recession, the financial crash of 2008. Right, so if neoliberalism is economic conservatism and social liberalism, Trump is economic liberalism and social conservatism. Yeah. Uh, he didn't care about budget deficits. No. He was not an austerity guy. Right? So what about that? Right? So that is a kind of untried formula to break the logjam. That's what Trump did. Now, there's also like dirtbag leftism, you know, um, you know, like Chapo Trap House type of stuff or the Bernie bros and brochialism. Right. And it's like, hell yeah, we're we're straight white male dudes. Right. 
and fuck. That's, that's, <laughs> and that's we fuck. We <laughs> I, and then I was saying fuck like an interjection. No, oh, I thought you were saying verb. and we fuck. And, and we fuck, you know, is a verb, sure. But fuck it, we are that, you know, we're straight white male dudes. And, you know, if that makes us like the deplorables or, you know, like if that makes us the dirtbags, so be it. Well, I am a, I am right? a self-identified deplorable, you know, so, but it's, I, I don't know, like that was one of the things, I, I don't, the, I think a lot of the people that I was involved with were not straight white males um, and were insulted that they were being called as such. And it's not like any right. of these any it's not like any of these other groups that were active trying to get these other people, you know, in through the primaries had like this amazing representation because it turns out in America that the color of your skin doesn't really it generally define <laughs> your ideology, okay. right? <laughs> so it really doesn't. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe in a couple of states, right? Uh, it might No, it really doesn't though. It really doesn't. I mean, this is the thing. This whole way of posing things that the Democrats are insisting on and this whole woke capitalist thing is really, like, obsolete. It's obsolete out the gate, right? Like, it's it's to begin with well, it's a, a dead letter. It's especially obsolete after we watched Bernie, as you say, capitulate more to this kind of Hillary base over the course of a couple of years leading up to 2020, and made himself, he made himself sound more like the people he was running against. And then the, the people yeah. he was running against all acted like, oh, yeah, we're for universal health care. You know, they all acted like, that, oh, you know, Bernie, we got the memo. Now we're on board with that. But, but you're old and you're white and you're male, dude. And then obviously anybody who is pushing for him, everyone's like, come on, look, we've got a black guy we can vote for. We've got a, a, a white woman girl boss we can vote for. We got like a black woman girl boss we can vote for. We got, you know, go down the line of all these other identity categories. Yep, exactly. And then last second, all those people fold into Joe Biden, who's an old white straight male. So it's just like, okay, none of you fucking mean it. You just like to call us that and say that whenever we try to have a conversation it just doesn't matter in other words it really doesn't matter um you know right it's not like i mean look that was just democratic party bullshit against bernie um but again behind it is a whole ideology and i think that even people who supported bernie might have like denied this but they're sensitive to the accusation Right. Like, in other words, they're, they're defensive about it. They're like, oh, you know, maybe I am a straight white male. But what does that mean? You know, right. and then like, you know, but then you can kind of embrace it. Like I said, the dirtbag left. And the, the reason that I brought that up was that it, that seems to be what this anti-left Marxism is about. It's the latest iteration of this kind of dirtbag leftism that's been an important cultural expression of Bernie, Bernie bro, kind of, you know, leftism. I mean, again, I kind of, I mean, the other thing about like leftists who become right wing or who flirt with the right or who go beyond left and right and therefore really become the right, especially on like cultural issues, th there's a long history of that too, of ex-leftists, you know, embracing the right. And... Well, everybody, everybody started. Everybody started reading Christopher Lash, right? Within the last 
few years. Well, Christopher Lash was a leftist, though. You can do worse than that, right? Like, in other words, like, Christopher Lash, he might have had some more right-wingism in some of his books, but even then, you know, know, he was a leftist, he was a socialist, he was, you know, he wasn't ever really actually right-wing. You know, and I think that, again... This, this is just what happens to anyone who departs from the Democratic Party script. Right. Right? Well, and, and really, though, yeah. like the discomfort and the denunciation, like I said, with Tucker, the thing with Tucker, he was a kind of Reaganite Republican who's been reborn as some kind of populist. And why he has to be denounced in the way that he is by the Democrats is because he's uncomfortably close to them. Like, he's not so far from them, in fact, which is why he has to be like viciously denounced like they'd be much more yeah they're much more comfortable with like a Mitt Romney who is just a corporate capitalist guy than with Tucker right you know what the hell's that right so it's just interesting you know and again because we are dealing in the realm of like the internet and you know kind of meme culture and you know like a kind of an in-speak and a lot of like hyper convoluted and dense discourse and rhetoric you know because i don't know how to read tweets myself like i'm i'm definitely a boomer now i guess not really gen x but i don't know how to i don't really understand memes or tweets because it's just too like specific you know what i mean like i feel like i i don't know what the fuck people are saying really i don't know what this means the you know it just just seems way too inferential the the all of the old generational divides actually sort of they, they meant something to people who are dictionary defined as belonging to those generations you know and obviously there's a material basis the kinds of gadgets you use or whatever but the the in speak right now is that boomers anyone who's clueless around technology so it's it, it's not it's no longer yeah, a gen- it's no I longer it's no longer a generational category and it's actually usually a verb more than an identity so insofar as you mess up your audio on a stream they will call you a boomer it doesn't really matter what your age is so that's part of the memeing culture is like the the signifiers take on a whole new meaning and then anyone who's not in on the change well now you're a boomer because <laughs> you you don't get their joke right but what you're saying though is that you do feel completely out of the loop when it comes to a lot of this this in-speak meme talk stuff that they're doing yeah you know in other words i don't i don't get the subtleties of it you know i'm just going to be really kind of crass and be the bull in the china shop you know and i i don't know the faux pas you know that i'm committing all the time and i'm just not gonna know i'm not i'm not ever going to get up to speed with this stuff especially because it changes so fast anyway it it you it know. is a it is like a hyper a hyper speed version of the hipster discourse you know it's no longer about the shoes that you're wearing or the ironic you know tie or whatever it is that you have going for you it's it's it is yeah it's become memes so so i just you know belong to a different culture in a way and in that way i actually feel like i do have more culturally uh, to do with like the working class because you know people who are working are too busy to be on Twitter all day. You know? I think that's mostly true. I mean, Twitter really is as far in so far as there's a PMC, it's it's Twitter, right? So what most people mean is is Twitter when they say that word. And you know, you know especially people who had a lot of like time for that, 
under the lockdowns. I mean, that's the thing. It really exposed, like, who's working and who's not. Who's really working and who's not. Right. Meaning, you know, the online left is definitely, it's a phenomenon of, like, unemployment. Okay. It's also a phenomenon of middle class status and, you know, remote, you know, like, work. And people who are still, like, physically working, like, who couldn't work remotely, who had to, like, be there. Mm-hmm. Fuck, they're not doing this shit. No way. No. It's it's a yeah. lot of... I mean, it's bullshit jobs, right? So, mm-hmm. the the thing... So, I think we're, like, uh, halfway... We're a little over halfway through this, and so... What I wanted to do... Yeah, let's turn back to the, um, the substance of it. Yeah, and so that's what I wanted to do. So... Obviously, for anyone who hasn't read um, this back and forth, um, I hope you get a chance to, everybody, someday. But um, if you didn't, uh, we'll try to give a quick little rundown on it. And so the claim being made by... Because, for instance, so far we've talked about the sort of historical context that probably explains the phenomenon of which... Benedict is a part of, right? But that's, you know, and, and what might be some sort of psychological motives of, or, or some, what, you know, what, what he's reacting to, you know, uh-huh. which I think that that's, you know, that's not immaterial and that is important. But the, you know, so the central claim, though, is that the core of Marx is in his anti leftism. And there's actually an interesting synchronicity here between. Uh, that position and what you said in your response to Elaine Badu in the uh, the communist in, in your response to his communist hypothesis, where you talk about the Marxist hypothesis, uh-huh. right? Your piece called the Marxist hypothesis, right? Where you talk about how it, maybe you want to talk about that for a second because it's actually it seems very similar. I think the word the word you know it, everything kind of hinges on the fact that you use this word within. <laughs> you say mm. he was the fiercest critic of the left from within the left mm-hmm. right so but i but what where benedict cryptofash is coming from is saying yeah but you know so we, we couldn't transport him here and imagine uh, maybe i'm going out on a limb here as far as what he would say but we couldn't bring marx here and presume that he would be like hmm i see a lot of potential in you know the left side of capitalism. I could rally those people. I could really make that work. You know, let's 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 be a fierce. You know, let's do a let's do a critique so that we can get at the imminent possibilities here. Um, not necessarily. We don't know that he would have done that. Um, and so, for you, the you know the the core piece is, it sounds like from what you said earlier mm-hmm. of what Marx is doing has to do with the dictatorship of the proletariat and the the idea mm-hmm. of uh, of the imminent possibilities in capitalism leading through socialism to communism. Um, mm-hmm. But in that piece, though, in your response to Badu, you also say that he's a fierce critic of communism, but also he sees it as, uh, as a, a powerful force that could perhaps be harnessed or, or taken in a positive direction. Um, I mean, really, I would say the issue is this. So, um, Badu, for example, as like a post-Maoist, I suppose, but really a Maoist. Right. Um, he prefers to call himself a communist rather than a Marxist. And 
in embracing communism, he embraces essentially a kind of, you know, in terms of the French Revolution, liberté, égalité, fraternité. So he's really embracing um, fraternité, but égalité. And it, very explicitly going back to um, the apostles of Jesus, right? So he's in, in, he says communism is sort of the the inherent repressed potential of civilization. So ever since the beginning of class society in the Neolithic revolution, there's been a communist undercurrent. And, you know, there's been a kind of disenchantment with social hierarchy um, and a, a drive towards equality, but not merely towards equality, but towards fraternity, right? Communism. Um, and in that way, you know, when I referred there to like the left, Again, I was thinking of that kind of a left. And in the communist hypothesis, you know, Badu talks about it in terms of 1792 to 1871. So from the Jacobins to the Paris Commune. That's a 20th century way of talking about the left, right? I don't think in the 19th century really people talked about the left and the right. Even the idea that we uh, project back onto like the crisis of Hegelianism of like the left Hegelians and the right Hegelians right. it wasn't, it was the young Hegelians and the old Hegelians <laughs> that's what it was, it wasn't right. really left and right so I don't think left and right was really, it had a currency um, you know I think it, it it had a currency maybe in the French Revolution in that moment with the Jacobins versus the Girondins but then I don't think that it really is about that. Um, like, I don't think that, like, Proudhon or the utopian socialists or Marx and Engels, right, because Cryptofash says, you know, show me one place when Marx and Engels call themselves the left. Yes. They might. I, d I don't think that it's a prominent thing, though, for them, you know, to self-identify as the left. But I don't think that anybody did. I think they called themselves socialists and communists. I think they call themselves like proletarian revolutionaries, you know, like for the working class. They didn't talk left and right. So left and right is much more of a 20th century thing. And it actually comes from Marxism. It comes from the split in Marxism between the left wing and the right wing of Marxism. And it very deliberately uh, does reach back to that French revolutionary history. But it comes from a Marxism. But but it comes from a Marxism after Marx is dead. Yes. Okay. And so it that's comes important. From a rather late, you know. Like I don't even think the Socialist International, the Second International, like Kautsky. Like I don't think that that's. I don't think they call themselves like the left. Right. They don't call the socialist movement the left. They call it like social democracy, revolutionary social democracy, proletarian socialism, communism. They don't call it like left or right. Um, right, you know, there is a kind of, I guess, discussion of like re reactionaries, capital R reactionaries, conservatives, right. um, but not even like the right, exactly. You know, I think that this is all 20th century language, and it it comes out of and Marxism and and even then onto and even then reactionary meant amenable to capital. It didn't mean, you know, these social issues it didn't i mean there were always cultural conservatism you know there was that and there was also the reaction like in other words people who have nostalgia for like 
the monarchy and aristocracy and the traditional role of the church in society and religion. Okay. Right. There's the reaction, right. like the kind of people who want to turn back the clock in the French Revolution. Right. Which was against both the church and the aristocracy and against really the traditional way of life in many ways against the peasantry as well. So, you know, there's like the reaction. Mm. But I think that insofar as Marxists use that language is because they saw themselves as being in the revolutionary, like the French revolutionary tradition. And I don't think that that had much parlance in uh, capitalist politics until the 20th century. And I think that now at this late date in 2022, it's bound up with all sorts of things. It's bound up with like the Cold War. It's bound up with, you know, the Soviet Union and communism and anti-communism, all these things. Um, so I think that it's very tricky and we have to be careful as to how and why older Marxists would, would have or would not have used the terms left and right. And again, I think that this discussion now in terms of like anti-leftism is really a phenomenon of disenchantment with millennial leftism. Right. It's like, OK, no, we're done with that. We're not we're not doing this. We're not playing this game. We're not putting any hope in the Democrats at all. Like, right. It's sort of spurned ex Bernie bro type mentality. You know, we don't have any hope in Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders or anything like that. We're rejecting all of it. Right. We don't want to be in this tradition. We want to be like Marxists for the working class and that has nothing to do with left and right. Left and right is just the capitalist political game, and we reject all of it. I feel like, okay, that's one way of talking about it. That's not what I mean. Like, in other words, when I, when I say the left is dead, long live the left, I mean socialism, right? I mean proletarian socialism. Socialism as a phenomenon of capitalism. You know, of, like, again, Marxism, you know, that's what I mean. So um, and so, so back back in the day, the only people that I ever spoke to, like when I was much younger, who would say it's not about left and right, it would be like anarchists. And as a Marxist, I would just think, yeah, that's because you are right wing, meaning you have this like you know small mutual aid community kind of local democracy, you know, um, autonomy kind of vision and that's that's an attempt to turn back the clock on industrial capitalism that's an attempt to turn back the clock on modern society mm. right and so i again that's why i always heard beyond left and right as right wing right you I mean you mentioned graber who's an anarchist and right. foucault right who sometimes is seen as an anarchist but i think foucault is just a conservative right he certainly wanted to go beyond left and right and he wanted to, you know, disenchant people with the left and its claim of, like, freedom and say, no, they're just instituting a new disciplinary regime, right? And so, to me, that's conservatism. In other words, to say the left doesn't really mean it, it's not really about freedom, it's about a new discipline, that's a right-wing critique of Marxism. That's a straightforward right-wing critique of Marxism. It can sound anarchisty. it can sound libertarian, but it's basically like conservative. It's like the, they don't really mean it. 
And I feel like I'm getting that vibe from Benedict Cryptofash too, which is anti-leftism. It's like the left must be defeated, right? Because the left doesn't really mean it or something, you know? And I feel like, well, no, like that's, that's like a very specific point about DSA Jacobin and Bernie Sanders. And again, the disappointment of the last wave of millennial leftism. I, I think a big part of it, though, also has to do with the next wave. It will not succeed if it does the same thing, which is presuppose that the revolutionary subject is radical liberal students who say, well, I'm not a Democrat, I'm a leftist. I'm not a Democrat like my parents. I'm a real leftist. But what they mean by that is they just take the ideological scripts from a handful of the Democrat and like MSNBC mm -hmm. type, you know, talking heads to the letter. And then they, they want to hold those people accountable and right. measure and measure them by right. their high ideals or whatever. If, if that is right. the, if that is the presupposition again, and that just remains so, okay, but it doesn't really seem like there's any hope there. Well, I mean, I think there's a, a there is a long history, I think since the sixties, um, certainly since the eighties of the left being disappointed Democrats, meaning they feel betrayed, let down by the Democrats. They feel like the Democrats lie or are hypocritical, right? Or, you know, they, they betray, you know, their promises. And, you know, my attitude is I don't expect anything of the Democrats at all. Like, I, I don't feel betrayed by the Democrats. I think the Democrats say exactly what they want and they mean it and they do it when they can and when they can't, they don't. Um, and I don't think that they promise anything that has anything to do with socialism. Right? I don't think the welfare state is socialism. Um, I don't think that racial politics has anything to do with overcoming capitalism and achieving socialism. You know? So, you know, the left really is, I mean, in that sense, an adjunct to the Democratic Party, and that's been true for a long time. And would you and say that your position on that is basically the same as uh, Adolf Reed's? Because I know that you speak of him as one of your main influencers, uh, influences next to Moish Pistone. And by the way, I didn't say this in your introduction, but uh -huh. I, I'm a big fanboy for, for Moish Pistone. So this has been uh -huh. uh, all along like a really big thing for me. Is like I'm one point of removal from the man at this point. So that's exciting. But would, you would say then that that's basically the same position, though, as, as Reed or... Or is it different? Similar, similar. Um, so Adolf is an important teacher of mine from a young age. So I knew him from when I was in college. I went to college with his son, Ture. And he was, uh, Adolf was also friends with some professors of mine. And so I got the chance to know him. And then we both happened to move to Chicago. And so I got a chance to really get to know him very well here in Chicago. Um, and participate in his Labor Party project in the 90s. Um, and so, yeah, I learned a lot from Adolf, and I do agree with a lot um, of his work, especially his critique of the neoliberal Democratic Party as racial racketeering, as racial, racial capitalism, racial democracy, as opposed to social democracy. Right. Um, and so I, you know, 
I understand things very much in Adolf Reed's terms. Um, where we differ is on Lenin and Adorno, as it turns out. Um, so Adolf is actually more of a council communist. Um, but in practice... A social democrat. Of, yeah, social democrat. But that's because he decided after Ronald Reagan was elected that the project of socialism was off the table in favor of fighting against the right. Right. So, you know, there, you know, again, the that's where the neoliberal Democratic Party is for him, just part of the same Reaganite turn to the right. Um, and I feel like, well, OK, that's that's certainly true. But I think that there are some liabilities of conceiving things that way, mm. um, which is to say that it's like, I don't know, the the mainstream capitalist political spectrum itself moved to the right. And the Democrats are just the left wing of the right, if you will. Um, and I feel like, well, okay, that, that, that all makes sense, but my concern is not capitalist politics, nor do I think the struggle for socialism is dependent upon capitalist politics. I really don't. Um, so you don't we think just that deal. we got to deal with our situation. We, we can't say, OK, the workers would have an easier time organizing if they had higher wages and more free time and were more secure in their employment. And therefore, we need to get those things for the working class so that they can organize to be a force for socialism. We can't wait for that. We're going to be waiting our whole lives if we wait for those conditions. Right. So it's not about like better conditions for organizing for socialism. We have to be able to organize for socialism under like fascism if necessary. Right. So we certainly have to be able to organize for socialism under neoliberal capitalism. Give me a break. You know, yeah, people work two or three jobs. You know what? When the old socialist movement was organizing, people were working 12 hour days, six days a week. Right. So, it's you know. We, so we don't need better conditions of capitalism to organize for socialism, no. Mm. So I, wanted, I think that if your initial response to CryptoFash had pretty much said what you said, I think, 10 minutes ago when you started out with this, um, which was, well, in a sort of sense, we're talking about the same thing but he's using a different word or he's not using the word the way I'm using the word. Um, I felt like, I mean, that would have made things more clear. And, and what ended up happening was I felt like there was some talking past one another because of this. That was my first response to him was to talk about Kolakowski's concept of the left and right. say, look, where does that argument come from? That comes from the split within Marxism between a left and a right, between Rosa Luxemburg and Friedrich Ebert or between Lenin and Plekhanov, right? Or between Lenin and Kautsky, ultimately. Um, so that's, you know, I tried to sort of reset the terms of the discussion. Right. Um, but, you know, but, Tefash wasn't but, happy with that. But do you think... So the, la the latest round is a little different. So, it, it, well, and I, I think that that might have been a bad foot to get off on using Kolakowski right then, and maybe you can convince me otherwise, but... It seems to me. I was me... just trying to explain myself. I was just trying to say, okay, you know, rather than recapitulate the argument, just say, okay, what do I mean by the left? Right. And I was pretty clear that by the left I meant Marxism. Except that 
the way that Kolakowski talks about it, it's the left is that which goes against the status quo, but, you know, for equality. To realize its potential. Right. And then, obviously, the right's going to be whatever's not doing that. And so then these become relative to whatever historic moment you're in, and then that's yep. obviously really easy for uh, your average... Uh -huh. radicalized kid of Democrats today to go, well, yeah, so actually, um, you know, Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or even just whatever, Democrats in general as the left, lesser evil, they're still the the left because, and using basically Kolakowski's right. characterization here, they, and you know, their understanding of the status quo is, well, we live in a, a heterosexist, patriarchal, capitalist, you know, system. Racist racist system uh -huh. just go down the line right and so right. And, and and insofar as the you know this which i mean obviously i we would probably share this is a duopoly it's a single single you know capitalist entity but the uh but but it's easy for a person to use that idea that kolakowskian definition to to transpose it onto on anything it doesn't seem like it's a particularly that's Marxist. And that's why I that's why I described the context for Kolakowski. Um, in other words, yeah, it doesn't translate well into our own present moment. It so, doesn't. Do you want to? Do you want to? You know, talking about being a leftist dissident from Stalinism, and he was basically saying the Communist Party in Poland in the 1950s was the right. Okay. Right, and they were the right because they were the status quo, and. Basically, any leftist criticism of Stalinism, the Stalinists called utopian and idealist, right? And the Stalinists justified their policy as being materialist and concrete. Okay. As opposed to an abstract utopia that's idealist. And Kolakowski was saying, okay, if the left is an abstract utopia that is idealist, okay, I'll, I will accept that. But what does it mean? Right. Because, again, it's what we were talking about earlier. I think in the chat, like, you know, materialists don't deal with rhetoric. You still have to explain where it comes from. In other words, where do ideas come from? Right. Where does the utopia come from? Right. Like utopia is socially conditioned. It comes out of a historical moment. It, it's not an expression of a future. It's an expression of the present. Right. And so, again, it might be ideological, it might be obscure and mysterious, right? It may not be clear to itself, but it expresses a real possibility. And that's Marx's letter to Ruga for the ruthless criticism of everything existing, which I know Cryptofash invoked mm -hmm. for himself, you know, as the basis of his own criticism. Um, and I just thought, well, okay, yes, right? And that is where... Um, Marx says he needs to explain how uh, consciousness becomes obscure to itself, right? So a clarification of what the reformers want, what the revolutionaries want. Um, you know, in that way, you know, I, I have no problem saying a critique of the left, but really it was a critique of socialism and communism, and it was a critique of the workers' movement. It was more specific. And again, you know, my mistake, I guess, might be that I say left because I mean shorthand of socialism and communism and Marxism. Um, of course, that's not the way it's meant in capitalist politics. And maybe the baby leftists don't know. You know, maybe crypto fascist is a baby leftist. 
He doesn't know that you can use the term differently than capitalist politicians do, right? And so I just come from a different time. Like in, in my time, you know, Clinton didn't say I'm to the left of George H.W. Bush. You know, it just wasn't, they just didn't use that. You know, yeah. that wasn't part of the rhetoric. Um, and so, you know, I think that, yeah, I, I get your point. Maybe it was a wrong foot to start out from, but I was dealing with this issue of anti-leftism, right? And and why, you know, like, I'm not unsympathetic to the substance of anti-leftism, the way CryptoFash articulates it, but I am, I was called upon to defend why I use the term left. Sure. Right. Why I don't, why I don't junk it. And it really right? is for so, you. It really is for you going back to Kolokowski. By the way, Salamun da Costa is yep. in Poland right now in Katowice, Poland, and is one of the moderators in my chat and says, Poland apologizes for Kolokowski, sad face. Well, I just want to say. Kolokowski became a right wing crank and his main currents of Marxism is awful. It's an awful screed. And the, the people he hates the most in that book are Lukács, Lenin, and Adorno. And he, and he, like, he doesn't have a very nice chapter on Trotsky either. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. He definitely, right, he doesn't like Trotsky either. But I just feel like, okay, for real, he really hates people that are good. You know? <laughs> and he has a special hatred, right, of them. And so I just thought, yeah, main currents of Marxism is just a fucking screed. It's just a intemperate, horrible. I mean, Kolokowski was a smart guy. I mean, he wrote a lot of interesting things. Yeah. Um, you know, as a kind of heterodox philosopher, you know, so you know, he ha he has some significance as a thinker besides the one piece, the concept of the left um, that we use pedagogically in Platypus. Um, you know, to make some points. Like Kolokowski says, bleeding hardism is not a political position, right? So he simultaneously rehabilitates the notion of, like, the meaning of utopia um, against the Stalinist dismissal. And he also, you know, has a kind of hard-boiled, like, Marxism, which is that it's not based on a bleeding heart sentimentality. Right. Right. So, you know, I feel like, again, maybe we're across purposes, but, you know, I, I and again, like the Marxist left calls itself a left. And I don't think that they call themselves a left because they're adjuncts of the Democrats. I think they call themselves a left because they claim to stand in the tradition of the Russian Revolution. Right. So that's where I feel like, OK, well, we could just say. They, they, they have nothing to do with that history and they're just Democrats pantomiming as Marxists. But I don't think that that would be quite right or useful to do that. You know, like, it's easy to say that about DSA Jacobin. It's harder to say that about the IMT. Mm. Or SALT. Right? Like, socialist alternative. Right? Like, you, you, you could make the point that IMT is just a fringe tail on the Labor Party. And in the United States, just a fringe tail on the Democrats, and so is socialist alternative. You could, you could make that case. Um, I would make that case, but I feel like it flattens a great deal, you know. 
Um, and so I don't think that it's particularly helpful. Um, and by the way, you know, you mentioned the IMT, like if you look at like, you know, they have YouTube videos on dialectical materialism and they would make a lot of the same points that CryptoFash would make. Right. Well, and right at a philosophical level, you know, and the, that, for the working class and, you know, so far they would make a kind of anti-left, if you will, Marxist case, I think. I, I think so as well, you know, and they're obviously, and they would definitely obviously say that they're anti-democrat, even though I, you know, I, I still stand by that point about who they yes. presuppose they should be reaching out to. Um, but the... They seek to intersect the youth. And so, you know, it's like, we have to meet people where they are. And if they're, like, deep in the bowels of the Democratic Party, so be it. And I'm like, nah, not so much. Right. I mean, at least not for building socialism. Again, Platypus, like, I understand what I'm dealing with. In other words, we deal with students at liberal universities and colleges. And so, of course, we understand that we're dealing with people who are default Democrats and who are left in that bad way that CryptoFash says. That's true. But we're trying to, like, change that, right? Like, uh... I was going to ask you who, who the audience is for for platypus because i remember this one panelist i forget her name from your american revolution uh, uh series you had done mm -hmm. when she talks about how our audience used to be and i think she basically says like new york times the guardian i don't know I, and she's like but like who's it now and i don't know why we're talking you know it, by talking about this mm -hmm. like who are we assuming it is now and i was like well, I just wanted to hear mm -hmm. from the horse's mouth. Has your audience uh, or your readership, it, who you have in mind, changed over time? And if it has, who was it? Who is it? I mean, I would hesitate to say that a significant change has taken place. You know, but again, I'm older. You know, I'm in my 50s now. And so basically, you know, time passes for me in a different way. So, like, certainly the last 15 or 16 years that Platypus has existed um, is a long time. I do feel like I've been doing this for a long time, but it's a longer time for someone who was 20 when we started. Right? Yeah. So I was 36, now I'm 52. So someone who joined when they were 20 and who are now, like, 36, that's different. Right. right? Um, it's going to seem like more significant time has passed for them than for me. So... I mean, I guess people are no longer quite the same as they were when we started out, you know, at the beginning of the millennial left, now at the end of the millennial left, and with Zoomers, right? So the Zoomer, the Zoomer left might be different, might be rejecting the millennial left, might be more, like, ironical about certain things, and maybe even, like, flirting with the dark side, like, you know, soft on Trump and this kind of thing. Could very well be. Um, a different sensibility. Do people read articles like news articles do they read like things like the new york times and the new yorker and that kind of stuff i think that they probably still do i think people still i mean i think that the dominant media forums are the same as as they were um you know maybe they read dsa jacobin now maybe they read um you know other kind of online leftism that wasn't there as much when we started out you know, um, I'm not sure, you know, uh, 
I'm also not sure that it matters all that much. Meaning, I think that platypus, like, who's our audience? Our audience, our students, are anyone who's curious about Marxism. Now, I think in the chat, there was a question about, you know, what do I think of, like, autonomous Marxism and operismo and that kind of thing. Like, you know, we touched on this earlier. I would Wait a minute, you've got eyes on chat? <laughs> A little bit. Oh, that's killer. Okay, good. That makes me feel good because I was never going to catch most of these, but I did see that no, one. I'm not yeah. catching most of it, but that definitely stood out for me. Okay. And I feel like, okay, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be dismissive, but, but I'm going to sound dismissive, which is, I think autonomous Marxism and in general was more of a phenomenon of like anti-Stalinism and, you know, it re related to maybe with a, a separate history from council communism what we mentioned earlier you know like a palmatic senior and like a panacoic and uh the later carl korsh you know these kinds of thinkers um and you know really they were like communist militants you know they were they were proletarian socialist you know um, activists i guess um, so they weren't merely thinkers, but I think that that, that pretty much went nowhere in the twenties and thirties, you know, and it also didn't really go very far in the new left and it produced some new ideas, I suppose, and recovered some important neglected aspects of Marxism. But I think is colored too much, distorted too much by anti-Stalinism, which becomes anti-Lenin and really anti-Marxist. Um, and again, I'm I'm familiar with this from Adolf Reed and also Moish Pastone, very kind of anti-Marxist, right? So like they are like Marxist, but against Marxism. So they're against mm -hmm. like Stalinism and Trotskyism. Um, and Maoism, right? But, you know, so all the general varieties of Marxism one encounters in the world, they're not sympathetic to, or they're hostile to, in favor of um, other, like whether it's Marx himself, like Moish, although interestingly, Moish doesn't really do very much with Marx's own politics. He says, you know, that Marx himself was a traditional Marxist. Marx himself was an Engelsist politically, right? Not really a Marxist. Which I think is just, yeah, I don't think that's very useful. Um, well, I, I, and, you know? Well, you know, I want to... So, I think that the, the main point in time, labor, and social domination, um, and I think this point gets repeated in some other things I read, which I'm... I'd say... If I have a position, it's basically this position, um, uh -huh. is that Marxism's uh, becomes the the enshrinement of the working class, and and the reification of the idea of represent of represent of representative rule, uh, whether it be authoritarian, or centralized, or democratic, or whatever you want to call it. It's the idea that. Uh, 
that that the workers that the work that the salute that the solution comes through people adequately representing the interests of the workers and that and that the that the interests of the workers that there are objective interests of those workers that can be reached and that a lot of that's going to come through working with unions and all of this other stuff when the and I think this is Moish's main point is no it's the abolition it's the abolition of the form of labor specific to capital which is not just oh I make wages no you can abolish wages but the fucking form is still there right, right. The, fo the form of life that you have you don't have time and energy to do anything else with your life and so right. that that's not something that changes under Lenin or anyone that follows after him and in fact I mean, it's not, it's not something that really seems to be considered. Obviously, now we can, I, here's, you said they're not sympathetic. I'm very sympathetic um, in the sense that mm. he's responding to a specific historical situation. He's very disillusioned about the, you know, about the uh, socialism of his time. And they'd all mm -hmm. just betrayed the workers' cause by, you know, the war credits and whatnot. So, you know, mm. he's focusing on what he's focusing on, and it's a very specific situation he's in. But, yeah, the the idea of the abolition of the form of labor and of this identity category worker well, how? is not on That's the table. Question. How is that going to be? Because uh, I think that it, that is the goal, and I think Marxists always had that goal. Yes. Well, I think um, so, too. Yeah. Right? So Lenin had that goal. Rosa Luxemburg had that goal. Trotsky had that goal. That is the goal. The question is how it's going to happen. And... We, it, it, you know, the controversial point, and it's, it's in Marx himself. It's in not just Marx and Engels. It's in Marx. You're not going to overcome this immediately. In other words, there is going to be a transition, and this is the controversial point. Like right. this is why Marxism is not anarchism, because we can't just like wake up one fine day and just quit capitalism. We can't just say, "Fuck it, I'm not doing it anymore." Right. Um, no. So, you know, it's a political project. Um, it has to really stop capitalism at a global level. The world revolution. Um, and, you know, it has to actively seek to achieve conditions for ending wage labor. And for ending compulsory labor of any kind um you know life's prime need rather and or rather life's prime want rather than life's prime need so that's marx you know describing communism um so how how and we're going to do it on the basis of capitalism well, in other you... words it's we're not going to do it by just quitting capitalism like cold turkey we're going to do it in and through and out of capitalism itself right and that means and it's you know it's very tricky and this is again i kind of feel like maybe these anti-leftist marxists you know are onto something there where they they detect something where they're like you know what the democrats are not leading us to socialism but maybe the republicans kind of are in some way in other words what's detected is the conservatism of proletarian socialism that the revolution if there's a revolution in the united states it's going to be motivated by the desire to save society from capitalism right it's going to be based on what i would call bourgeois social values 
it is going to be based on like the work ethic. It is going to be based on that kind of stuff. It's going to be, you know, the capitalists and capitalism more generally have ruined the world of honest work and participating in society that way. Um, and we want we want to go back to that. We don't want to become serfs, right? We don't want to become, you know, debt slaves, you know, of a rentier class of people, right? We don't want to be, you know, just earning billionaires monetization through our clicks online, right? So it's going to be some kind of conservative bourgeois impulse against the crisis of capitalism. So, you know, but again, Marxists understand that you can't restore bourgeois society. So like a Tucker Carlson, you, know, you can't, we can't restore bourgeois society. Um, the only way out of capitalism is through capitalism. So the working class insofar as it is mobilized um, you know, so you can get like working class cadre who are socialists who will understand some Marxist theory. Um, but I think the majority of the working class is not going to be Marxist. It's not ever going to be Marxist. And you're going to need the majority of the working class to make a major political change beyond capitalism, or at least in that direction. And they're going to be motivated in a contradictory way. Uh, and I think Marxism is just aware of that, right? And aware of um, the fact that capitalism is unrevocable, like it's it's irreversible. It's not like we can go back to pre-capitalism or something um, in any way. Um, so what we can do is leverage the crisis of capitalism against itself, beyond itself. And that's going to move in a contradictory way. It's going to move in the direction of like restoring wage labor. And it's also going to move in the direction of technology making wage labor unnecessary. And it's going to have those two parts. So like Moish Pistone has this, you know, kind of unfortunate, but also very useful way of putting things, which is proletarian constituting revolution versus proletarian transcending revolution. And the point is that the revolution is going to be both of those things. And it's going to have to work through the contradiction of those things. And I think that like autonomous Marxism, Aparismo, left communism and council communism, like in general, you know, socialism or barbarism, like Cornelius Castoriadis, um, you know, kind of post-Marxist Marxism, if you will, you know, that that did become disenchanted not only with Stalinism, but also with Trotskyism and with Leninism more generally. Um, you know, I think angled in that direction, but maybe in a, in a one-sided way, like meaning and emphasizing like overcoming work. And again, it's going it's the question then is how, how is that going to happen? You need the working class to abolish work in the way that it, exists now right you need the wage laborers to abolish wage labor yeah right like you can't because you know as you said earlier like i guess you could have a technocratic 
management class abolish wage labor formally, but in substance, it would still be there. Right. Right. And I guess that's like the kind of criticism of the Soviet Union as the domination of the working class, that it's not like in the usual form of commodity exchange or wage labor, but in substance, it is it is the same thing. Right. Now, again, I think that the struggle for socialism has to take place at the level of, like, state power. It can't be, like, just local withdrawal from, like, I don't know, modification or something. It can't be, like, mutual aid networks. We've got to be aiming at state power, and we have to be aiming at the most powerful state power. And the most which developed is the capitalist... S- mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, obviously not... The party system, I mean, I never I never got to say this yet, but just, uh-huh. you know, the party system obfuscates that, for the most part, what's really running the show is the CIA. Oh, the deep state. Yeah. Oh, if you want to call it that, yeah. I, I mean... The administrative state. Yeah, the, 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 the bureaucratic organs of anti-communism that have been built over the last, you know... The permanent state. How many years? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say, look, let's let's be clear about like people who are anti-socialist people who are anti-socialist or anti-communist are they don't think it's possible they don't think socialism or communism are really possible they think only a totalitarian nightmare is possible which would just be a domination of like you know management over the working class so they don't think that like the emancipation of the working class through socialism they don't think the Marxist vision is possible. So it's not that they're against it. They just don't think it's possible. If well, they consider- it was possible, they would support it. Considering the fact that it, it's PMC lefties that give socialism its reputation today. Yeah. Yeah. I, w- I don't want to see any of these motherfuckers with power. None of them. No, I would not either. That's right. So, of course. And that's where, you know, if that's socialism, count me out. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. But, you know, but but we have to be clear, you know, so the right, when they reject socialism, um, they reject it as impossible and undesirable, meaning like it would just be uh, an attempt to do something that's not possible, which will just make things worse. You know, they see it as like creating like social chaos and disorder, tearing down society in the name of nothing better than what we have now, you know, that can only make things worse. And I kind of feel like, okay, that's what we're really dealing with. We're not dealing with people who are like, I don't want socialism because I'm against equality, right? It's because they don't believe it's possible, right? So that's important to keep in mind because then, you know, the Democrats don't believe socialism is possible. And a lot of people who call themselves the left also don't really believe that socialism is possible. They really don't. Um, and so, you know, they do believe in their own virtuous social justice warrior, you know, knowing better, you know, um, and doing what's best for the people. And I, you know, I think Marxism, the way I understand it, and the tradition that I see myself in is that political change is one part of the process that really has to be a social revolution 
And so, you know, taking state power, the dictatorship of the proletariat, all this stuff is necessary but insufficient. And by the way, that's also what my old professor Moish Pastone thought. He thought that traditional Marxism was necessary but insufficient. And so in and of itself, it won't get us there and it might even get us further away right. from the goal. But he still thought it was necessary. Especially when you, yeah, say, all right, everybody, we've achieved socialism now. And uh, <laughs> now get back to work. But don't worry. So, you know, this is yours. You're important. represented. Yeah. In other words, he thought, yes, you are going to have to take the private property and the means of production away from the capitalist class. Yes. And you are going to have to empower the working class. In other words, the proletarian constituting and proletarian transcending, he understood that those weren't flatly opposed, that you needed a proletarian constituting politics in order to be able to have the possibility of a proletarian transcending politics. Right. Right. So he wanted to go beyond traditional Marxism. He wasn't just like opposed to it. Right. And, you know, again, kind of like in the 60s, I guess, the new social movements looked like they, they could take the already constituted proletarian politics and build on that and transcend it. And as it turned out, that's not really the case. And instead, we've been thrown back. And I would argue that in the 50s and 60s, there had not been a proletarian constituting politics anymore. I think that had happened in the era of the Second International, of like, you know, old historic Marxism. Um, and that, you know, what you had in the 20th century was, was the proletariat not constituted as a political subject. So it's not like we could sort of take that for granted and then build from that. I think that there was a lot of backtracking by the time Moish was writing. And also the left communists and the council communists and like autonomous Marxism and operismo. I feel like they thought that they were trying to go beyond something that already was there. You know, that there was like a, a proletariat constituted as a political force and that it, it had reached its limits and was too conservative and needed to we needed to go beyond that. They were basically arguing against the communist parties of France and Italy. And I would say, no, it's not like you're building upon that and trying to go beyond that. It's re that those parties actually represented a regression and were not really, they were already kind of parties for managing the working class. They weren't, they weren't, you know, really uh, constituting a, a proletarian political force in, in the direction of socialism. Um, they were really just props of capitalism, the communist parties in the West. Um, so, you know, I think the problem is deep. And I think, you know, again, I'm not sure about Cryptofash and his, his argument, but I suspect that it's much more about recent history. Like, I don't, I don't think it's really about like the Italian and French communist parties of the fifties and sixties. You know, I don't think that it's about like high Stalinism in that way. Right. Well, and so I want to just say a couple points of order and I'll touch mm -hmm. on, I'll touch on my main criticism of cryptofash <laughs> since I'm done playing devil's advocate. I don't think I did a very good job, 
playing devil's advocate. I think that people should read the articles and then comment yeah. on comment on this video in the future. I suspect he will do something along those lines. Um, mm -hmm. Someone said he was in the chat. I don't know if that's true or if it was just because someone sounded like him. But the one thing I did want to say as a point of order, though, is that the chat has been a long one. There's been a lot of mm -hmm. contributions. Um, and I hope it doesn't get erased. Sometimes it's not accessible later. But the main thing is, is if you're watching this and you're like, wow, I asked a question and it didn't get answered and you dropped out of the live stream and you came back in the future and then you watched this later and you're like, well, no one ever responded to my question. Or if you're still in the chat and you asked something earlier and it still hasn't been responded to, do put your own comment or some new version of it into the living version of the chat which is the one under the video because it drives me absolutely yeah. bonkers when there's a lot of great engagement in the live chat obviously we can't keep up with it and then um, you just put that in the living version because uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to resume the conversation someday um, and uh, if you know if, if what you've said you know sticks with either of us then it will be brought up again I'm sure and so you know it's not a you know any any real any real thinking or conversation is sustained and uh, so it's not a one-off so mm -hmm. um, I, I, I suspect I'll be you know I'll be walking and like hit by a bolt of lightning oh my god I should have said this thing so you know we'll hopefully mm -hmm. get to all that stuff later and obviously I want to hear your your hot takes on the main currents one of these days because I mean holy cow that's a pretty life-changing three-volume work um, but <laughs> the uh, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, my main criticism of Benedict Cryptofash is just that uh, he, as well as Amy Therese, never say what they mean by Marxism, ever. And that, at least from what I've been able to find, I haven't like, w I haven't listened to everything on What's Left and I haven't read everything, you know, well, I I've not read all his tweets, but uh, just going off of the, it's like, no, I'm sorry, Marxism is not just uh, it's not even just dictatorship of the proletariat. Like you said, it's a necessary condition, but it's not sufficient. So what else, what are the other aspects? Um, personally, that's something that I agonize over and have been working through for years. Um, and so to see people be like, well, we're the real Marxists and we don't like this or we don't like that. It's like, yeah, but what is Marxism to you? And, uh, that's a problematic word because it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And sorry, you can't just lump yourself up into that broad bag. It does, doesn't work. And so, uh, when I asked Amy Tree, directly through direct messages on Twitter uh, mm. ba back when she first came onto my radar I'd like looked at, I listened to some of her podcast stuff and then I messaged her and I, I was asking her like what what's her position on some things and she's like well I'm just a Marxist and I was like so what kind of a Marxist mm. then would you say that you are because you know like you know for some people it's like Marxism evolves in the correct direction through this one lineage or or it it was fucked from the beginning it, you know Marx was on to, for me I can say for certainty that I like Marx and, and by the way happy birthday Marx everybody it's his birthday today oh, yes, indeed. yeah but I can say that I find most important to my own thought his fundamental questions and concerns and everything else that comes after it gets enshrined as a state ideology uh, I'm not so sure it's gonna take a lot of history lessons from my elders and a lot of books and so uh, for the time being I'm in a skeptical position but when I see people who are ostensibly or I'm getting lumped up with them calling themselves Marxists, I'm just like what are you talking about I've organized with Marxists. none of them are the same and they're all over the mm. fucking place so anyway that's my main criticism of crypto fashion well, yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, and that's right. I didn't mention that when I introduced you, but that is what you get. You know, if if crypto fash you know, goes by, if crypto fash, 
What's that? Tragic but true. Right. So, I mean, how dare they call themselves Marxists when you're the last Marxist, right? Indeed. So, yeah. Is no, there I any... mean, my goal in life is to get everyone to admit that they're not Marxist. <laughs> is it? Yeah. That's the way to clarify things. Just, well, I'll just say it. I'm just not, you know, I'm just not pure enough. But, uh. No, so... it's not about purity. It's about, it's about something like, I don't know, basic, to use a word. Um, you know, meaning, uh, I like to keep it simple, right? Capitalism goes into crisis. Capitalist politics is about managing the crisis. Is there an alternative to capitalist politics of managing the crisis, right? So can we do something else? Um, because, you know, the culture wars, all this stuff, that's just a way of managing the crisis and and obfuscating it yeah obfuscating but also mobilizing so you know the crisis of capitalism manifests as the workers being pitted against each other and they can be pit pit against each other in many different ways so of course like long-standing like cultural social differences are there they're ready at hand um, and so, you know, whether it's like racial conflict or religious strife, you know, any kind of communitarianism, any kind of ethnic, cultural, communitarian violence. I mean, every country's got it. Every country's got it. Why is that? Right? Right. Capitalism. You know, like, let's just get real. We can disenchant it. Meaning, you know, is like, I don't know, anti-black racism in the United States. Is that like really more powerful than anti-Muslim sentiment in India. Right? Or in, in Myanmar, you know, where they, you know, massacre the Rohingya. Like, in other words, like, are we really going to claim that somehow this is like a deeper problem that we have in the United States because of the history of racism than exists in other countries? Right? Like, we would never say, we would never accept that India could never be socialist because of Hindu-Muslim animosity. We, right. would never, we would say that's a lame excuse. Right? But in the United States, we're willing to say, you know what? White supremacy. We can't have socialism. What? No. Or patriarchy, sexism. You know, that means we, can, we can't have socialism. No. Like, we just got to get real about the fact that these things are not the deep obstacles or they at least should not be the deep obstacles that people think that they are and it's also like we're not gonna first right that's the other thing it's like first you have to solve hindu muslim strife in india before <laughs> they can struggle for socialism no it just doesn't work that way right uh you know like first we have to make the working class like anti-racist before we can struggle for socialism or uh, first not this it's never going to happen a, 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 a really good example right now is with Roe v. Wade, right? This is yeah. being this is being posed as an inherently leftist position, um, and you know, I just I, I have a lot of women in my life who are on both sides of this thing, and or prefer not to, which is I think the general working class position is I don't have right. this, I don't have the privilege to have a strong position on these things. Um, and, and that, right, the, who, are, who are you to tell people what to do? Right. And so, 
the and which and there's 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 a couple versions of libertarian ways of presenting pro and anti-abortion positions. Yeah. Um, yeah. which are both obviously a lot more palpable than these demonizing, humiliating, scapegoating, essentializing, totalizing, fucking bullshit versions that just like completely dehumanize the other. I just got into it on Twitter about this because someone was like. You know, I just went on there to just share that this was happening, and then I happened to see someone, like, saying, for them, it's always just about power. And it's just like, no, it's fucking not. Like, I'm sorry, all the women in my life who are Christians who care about this shit, they don't fucking care about power. They care about the lives or souls of, like, what they consider to be human beings who have, like, destinies and potential and meaning on this planet. And it's a different metaphysic. To, than to a secular person, but it doesn't take a lot of empathy to just go, oh, we believe different things. And right. These are, epi right. these are epistemically irreconcilable, but we're not going to get over all these, er uh, these epistemic irreconcilables before socialism. That's fucking dumb. And so it just blows my mind that people are still thinking that that's like, that's where it's at, you know? No, I mean, that's where we remain beholden to capitalist politics. But again, in a way that I think most of the working class is not. Like, in other words, I think they're much more equivocal on these things. You know? Um, and, you know, don't have what you're calling, like, epistemic differences. You know, is it a life? Is it not a life? I don't think people think of it that way. I really don't. I think they think it's a potential life, and it's kind of a shame if you have to have an abortion. I think that's you know, probably the most that that is the normie position. I do think so. Yeah. You know, and it's like you know, it's sometimes necessary. But it's not desirable. Right. You know, but you know, and then there's like quality of life issues, and like you know, if you can't raise a child properly, then you shouldn't have the child. You know, I mean, it's just like people are very real. Well, it. at this point, we're we're over the the two hour mark, and we uh -huh. I, I want to give you the like you can close out, touch on anything else you want to touch on. But I was going to ask this question, then I wasn't going to ask it, but then this last part just happened. And so now okay. I have to ask it. So if there was a, if not, not a worker party, like a third party, everyone always thinks that's what we mean. Right. But, right. um, we're not talking about a third party, but if there was a, a kind of revolution where there is an actual workers party and it displaced the two party system, as well as the third parties, um, mm -hmm. Would you then agree that there would be a left and a right on this that doesn't adhere to the opportunist versus ultra or utopian schema schematic, but instead the left and the right, because of the cultural milieu that we are in and the culture war and everything like that, that left and right would mm -hmm. actually have to, on the one side, there would still be pro-life people and on the other side, there would be pro-choice people. Right. I'm not sure that that's a left-right distinction, exactly. Um, so, I mean, I mean, I think that it's kind of become, I think it's become even worse than that. In other words, I think it's more pro-abortion, anti-abortion. Right? I really do think um, there are people who are culturally committed to, like, abortion per se, to defending abortion per se. Yeah, right? true. So it's not Absolutely. just choice, right? Right. Um, I mean, I think, you know, a libertarian, I mean, you know, it's just, it's a basic thing. And you'll even get this in mainstream politics, which is, you're not going to eliminate abortion. What you're going to do is criminalize it and drive it underground, right? Yeah. And, you know, abortion's been practiced for thousands of years. 
right? Every every culture, every civilization practiced abortion, right? Um, and sometimes they had a moral issue around it, and sometimes they didn't, right? But it was practiced. And so the only question is criminalization or not criminalization, yeah? And you know, I mean, I always like to use the example of like I don't know, drugs, right? I'm pretty much a teetotaler when it comes to drugs, but I think drugs should not be illegal. I, I'm for the decriminalization of drugs, but I would also tell everyone I know, be careful, maybe drugs aren't good for you. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, in other words, like, I'd be, you know, I, I would have some moral issue around drug use, but I would not want the state or the government to penalize people. Right. Right. So, you know, it's like that, right? What? Where I feel like at the very least, you know, we can say um, the state should not, you know, but I think that we live again in a very degraded time where people think that the law is like morality, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so I yeah. think that, again, people do generally, you know, ordinary people, but working class people would have a more sober and realistic attitude about these things. In other words, they, they might assume that it's like a moral issue, but they might also realize that like it's circumstantial, you know? The, the, so, I just want to stipulate my question because I, I did that thing where I, I used a specific example as opposed to what I was trying to get at, which was a, a more general point. And I, I, I was uh -huh. just, so I was using the abortion issue as the example. example. But what I, mean, one, yeah. what I mean is take the culture war as it currently exists would that exist basically roughly similar left and right in the worker party i mean it could i mean hopefully it would be displaced hopefully it would be subordinated oh, totally I, mean, I would say that at just a very basic point is that the working class has to be organized into a political force for socialism cutting across the existing ideological divisions in capitalism and that would include the cultural divisions but really there are a lot of policy divisions you know like gun rights taxes you know look socialists supported gun rights socialists were against taxes right does that mean that they were right wing no right it just means that the divisions in capitalist politics that we have today really have absolutely nothing to do with organizing people for socialism and so these issues would appear very differently under different conditions of politically organizing people especially working class people but there would so, i mean it's a whole yeah. question of how we get there though and part of how we yeah. get there would be ostensibly maybe maybe now it would have to be agnostic on certain questions i would th yeah i would think so right so an example that um an old uh, acquaintance of mine who was a leftist historian, a Marxist historian, a historian of the workers' movement, Bill Peltz, the William Peltz, P-E-L-Z, and he wrote some books. Um, you know, he used the example in the United States, but also even elsewhere. Um, there was a temperance movement in the working class, and it fed into progressivism, and that's why we had prohibition in the United States. So the Socialist Party in Germany or the Socialist Party in the United States or in England had to navigate in the working class culturally there was a temperance movement. So there were people who were okay with drinking and there were people who were opposed to drinking. And they had to include both people 
in the party. Right. And also social events for both people, for both, you know, kinds of people. <laughs> Just as an example, right? Drunk people um, go to this one, sober people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, seriously, right? Um, and, you know, I think that that's an example of, like, people had very passionate feelings about this. In other words, there were socialists who felt alcohol is what the capitalists use to control us. And right. so they were, like, completely opposed to drinking alcohol as socialists. Yeah. Right? And it's like, okay, we're not going to a priori... We're not going to a priori exclude those people, but we're also not going to turn the Socialist Party into the temperance movement, which was really a lot more to do with middle-class progressivism than it was with the struggle for socialism. Right. Right. And because Marxists were opposed to the state criminalizing alcohol or criminalizing any recreational drugs. You know, so again, it's like, you know, is that, is that libertarian? I guess that's a kind of libertarian perspective, but that is the historic kind of Marxist position. But there were socialists on both sides. Well, I think and, another way of you know, saying it is that there's a, a sort of, if we want to do a broad politics, if we want to do a mass thing, mm -hmm. then we have to, the, the basic architecture has to allow for a lot of localized kinds of, you know, decision-making on these kinds of issues. So there's just, you know, so, I mean, my thing, I wish it was county by county. And then if you, you know, if you need an abortion, well, you go to the other county. Like right. Well, it should be, well, not necessarily, right? I mean, you would hope so. I mean, county by county, I mean, you know, I do think that a socialist position is decriminalization of abortion. But I yes. also think that it should not be posed as um, a kind of simple endorsement of abortion. Right? In other words, there should be a place for acknowledging, you know, uh, that it's not only the right to not have children, or it's not just contraceptive rights, it's also rights to have children. Right? right. It's like, what about that? And right. isn't it a shame? Right. You know, that you have to be rich to have children. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. No, and that children is a hardship for working class people. Right. Isn't it's that true. a real crime, you know, of capitalism? And, you know, I mean, so yes, like reproductive freedom, reproductive choice, sexual freedom, definitely. But in all of its aspects. Right. And there should be an acknowledgement of there being something sad about the wasted potential for human life. You know, at some level. In other words, like, I, I don't think that can be the center of things. You know, but I think, you know, we kind of live in a nihilistic culture. Like, capitalism breeds a certain kind of nihilism. And all sorts of pessimism. You know, this idea that, I don't know, the environment means people shouldn't have kids. Right. You know, like AOC said that. And I feel like, you know, really, okay, so you want the workers to listen to that? Because, you know, it's fine if you want to tell rich people don't have kids because the environment can't take it. But are you going to tell working class people that they shouldn't have kids because the environment can't take it? No, that's not right. 
it worked for me until I wanted to have kids is basically the way it works, you know? And I think that that's how people go, oh, well, you become conservative when you get older. But it's like, ah, I don't think that makes you conservative. You know what I mean? I think it's just realistic. Oh, but then they'll say being realistic is conservative, whatever. You know, this is right. But I don't, I don't, just don't agree. It's like, no, I'm sorry. But if we want socialism, then it's going to have uh -huh. to work. It's going to have to work for families. So, and, and mm -hmm. people who want to have them. I mean, this is the and reproduction the of life. What's that? Isn't it for the future? Isn't socialism for the future? And, you know, is the future of the human race just going to be rich people's kids? I mean, really. You right. Know? I mean, I just feel like, you know, like, there's just no fucking way you're going to tell the working class don't have kids. Right. Socialists can't be in that position. Yeah. You know, capitalism already tells them don't have kids. Socialists can't like reinforce that, right? Right. They can't ideologically sanction that. That no way. Like that's just wrong. And you know, it's it's the underdeveloped world. You know, like what are you going to do? You can tell people in 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 India or China or Latin America or Africa you can't have kids. They're they're fine with doing no. it to our own rural populations, just not to you know, if it's in other parts of the world. You know, then that all of a sudden it's not okay. But it's like. You know, we're still talking about economically disadvantaged people who, yeah. you know, it, it, you know, to, to, to some degree, there's obviously with Mormons and Catholics and stuff like that, a lot of ideology between behind, like having a lot of kids or whatever. But, yeah, you know, fruitful and multiply. but being I mean, anti having kids drives that having lots of kids thing in a lot of ways, too, I think. So it does, you know, it's a part of the culture work. And, you know, it's really awful that way. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I think that it needs to cut across these cultural divisions. Um, and, you know, those need to be downplayed rather than played up. I mean, it's obvious that capitalist politics demagogically exploits these issues to divide people. I mean, that's just obvious. And capitalism makes that possible by dividing the working class anyway. Right. And so these divisions that exist are just exploited by capitalist politics and have to be transcended by socialist politics. They do. And that doesn't mean, you know, okay, no differences. It just means let's let's downplay rather than exacerbate. Right. 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 And then, you know, we'll figure it out. You know, like let's deal with capitalism. You know, and I don't know, I mean my again, my basic attitude is that um, the working class is never going to be jacked up on ideology. It's never going to be anti-natalist and nihilistic in this way. Um, the struggle for socialism is just not going to happen that way. It's just not. You know, it's going to be based on the basic morality of the society, which is bourgeois values. You know, um, respect for each other, cooperation. You know, uh, don't get into your neighbor's business. You know, right. Mind your own business. You know, uh, so the, I mean, the, 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 the quintessential working class attitude, fuck off. <laughs> Just leave me alone. Off. Yeah. I'm off work. Leave me alone. I'm not getting paid for yeah. this. Go away. Exactly. So, you know, I just think, again, we've gotten into this place and it's the sixties, I think. You know, that's the beginning of the culture wars. And it's a it's it's a capitalist game. That's what it is. And it has nothing to do with the struggle for socialism. And 
thankfully, it doesn't have much to do with the way most working class people are anyway. Right. All right. Well, Chris, thank you for joining us. Um, I hope to uh, make it to your convention next year. I hope to continue this conversation some someday. Um, everybody cool. in the chat, thank you for coming by. Make sure to drop a comment in the in the in the living chat, not the live chat. And uh, yeah, thank you. All right, all right. Take good care. Take care. Thank you.